Good morning, I invite you to turn to the last part of John 4, or the remaining part. We looked at the first part last time, Jesus came to Samaria, and there was the revival of the Samaritans in Sychar. Now Jesus in Cana of Galilee. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, we're at verse 43 through the end of the chapter. Verse 43, hearing the very word of the Lord. Now after two days in uh, Samaria and Sychar, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. God's holy word. Let us bow and ask the Lord's blessing to us. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for assembling us around your word. And we pray now that you send to us our Lord Jesus by his spirit to stand in the assembly of the saints and to feed and nourish us by his word, to call forth faith, to strengthen faith, and to glorify himself by revealing who he is, the Son of God, Come for sinners. Father, we thank you for the riches of your word, for the truthfulness of your revelation, for the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters in the Lord, I wonder how your list compares to Christ's list. Your list, with all of your wants and desires, We all, of course, have a list. We all operated according to a list this past week. We we know some of those wants and desires were vocalized and some were were not said aloud. Some of those wants and desires for our lives, some of our needs were presented as prayers and petitions to God. Other desires and wants came out as complaints, grumblings. But if we took our list took note of the things at the top of our list and 
compared it with Christ's list, his priorities for our lives, how would the list compare? Where would there be congruence and where would there be contrast? And if we found that there was huge contrast, difference between our list and Christ's list, whose list would we go with? Whose list would we trust to be the better thing for our lives? This morning, Jesus Christ reveals himself in John chapter 4 as the Son of God who has come to give us something greater. He's come to give something greater to those who are too easily satisfied. And I'd like to walk through the story with you here in three parts. First of all, we notice Jesus Christ uncovering the issue, the problem. And then we see Christ go to work. And we see him performing the rescue. And then the episode ends with us witnessing that salvation has come to a household. Well, first of all, what's the issue that Christ uncovers? We know last time that Christ was in Samaria, and there was a very fruitful ministry among the Samaritans, first with a Samaritan woman at the well, then with all these people from the town who believe on Jesus, and, and they're all coming to Christ and believing on him. But Christ, after a couple of days, departs because he's come, first of all, for the covenant people, the Jews, and so he continues his journey upwards to Galilee. And maybe you remember at the beginning of chapter 4, we had read that Christ had purposefully left Judea, that central region, to go to Galilee because the Pharisees knew that people were flocking to Jesus and his disciples to be baptized. And therefore, we know the Pharisees regarded Christ as a threat. And Christ did not want to provoke a premature crisis. He's going to do that, of course, at the end of his ministry. He's going to bring about his own cross. He's going to confront them and force them to deal with him. But right now, it's too early. So he heads north to Galilee where he can get away from the Pharisees in part, but also he can move to a place where he won't receive such honor. Because verse 44 says, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And he's coming now to his own country, to Galilee. We know that we're more inclined to to honor strangers than people we know. They the people of Galilee might say to themselves, who's this Jesus? We grew up with him. We know his parents. We know his brothers and sisters. Who does he think he is? And so Jesus was often scorned and despised in Galilee. And it's a sad thing here that as Christ leaves Samaria, people who are outside the covenant, and receives such a reception there that now he comes to his native land and he comes to a people who would reject the very Christ God has sent them. But when we read in verse 45, we might think Christ is mixed up because in verse 45, when he comes to Galilee, the Galileans received him. They welcome him. Sounds pretty good. Until John tells us the reason. Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. Jesus had performed miracles at the feast in Jerusalem. The Galileans had been there and had witnessed these signs And now they're receiving him and welcoming him because they're hungry for miracles. They're hungry for signs and wonders. So there's this outward enthusiasm, but it's not about honoring Christ as the Christ of God. And yet Jesus has come there. He's come there not just to escape the Pharisees. He's come there to minister. He's come there to open up Galilee to the gospel. 
And this is really the beginning of Christ's great Galilean ministry that lasts for some 16 months. And, and John and his gospel doesn't spend very long on this at all. The other gospel accounts do. But what we have to see is that Christ is revealing himself to, to ever-widening circles. He revealed himself in Judea. Then he revealed himself to the Samaritans. Now he heads north and reveals himself to the Galileans. Christ has come to seek and to save the lost. And verse 46 tells us that he came back to where he had been before. Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And that's important because back in chapter 2, when Jesus had performed that miracle at the wedding, he was not just saving a groomsman from embarrassment, but he was doing something remarkable. John writes in John 2 verse 11, this beginning of signs... Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That first sign of Christ's ministry manifested his glory as the Son of God and caused his disciples to believe on him. Now Christ comes back to Cana of Galilee and there's opportunity for another sign. Signs of Christ are important. Remember, actually, John the Gospel writer is going to tell us at the end of his At the end of his book, the reason why he wrote this, he says Christ did many other signs before his disciples, but these ones, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So here comes Christ now with opportunity for another sign. There comes to him, there comes to him, verse 46b, a nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So he's a nobleman or a royal official. Uh, perhaps he belongs to the court of, of Herod, Herod Antipas, who ruled in the northern Galilean region. And he lives in Capernaum, some 16 miles away from Cana, and he's got a son who's sick, who's sick. And when he hears, verse 47, that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so we have here a desperate father, right? Despite all of his, his uh, standing, social standing, whatever wealth, whatever authority he has, he lives in the same world that we do, a world that's broken, a world that's cursed, a world that's falling apart, a world in which we need help. And he can't do anything to save his own son. But he's heard about Jesus who does miracles. And he goes running off 16 miles to Cana. But then comes the surprise. As he comes to Jesus, imploring him to come down and heal his son who's about to die, Jesus, verse 48, said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. It's maybe not what we were expecting. Sounds in our ears maybe a bit harsh, a man who's desperate, understandably so, coming to Jesus, asking for help, receives what appears to be something of a rebuke. It's actually not just a word for the Father. The New King James has added the word people, unless you people see. And they do that because in the, the Greek, there is... The ability to distinguish between the singular you and the plural you. And so the plural is being used here and the text reads, unless you, you all, unless you people, unless you folks see signs and wonders, you will by no means 
believe. Jesus is addressing more than the Father. He's addressing this crowd of people, these Galileans who's welcomed him, who, who are so excited or so enthusiastic. Because they've welcomed him, not because they believe who he really is, the Christ of God who brings forgiveness and reconciliation with God, but because they're sign-hungry. They love the sensational. They love the exciting. And that's a problem. Tonight we'll speak some more about faith and true faith. But one of the kinds of false faith we speak of as miraculous faith, not in the sense that faith is miraculous, a gift of God, which it is, but a faith in miracles. And a faith in miracles is not true faith because because faith in miracles embraces the power of Christ but disregards the person of Christ. Faith in miracles is excited about the wonders, the strength of Jesus, but it doesn't know him as he is, the Son of God come to reconcile sinners to God. And so Christ is addressing this general mood. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe But though he's addressing the crowd, he's probably not exempting the father. This is his response when the father asks for help. Jesus, I think, is testing the man. He's testing the man to lead him in the way of faith. What if Jesus just simply healed the son, left it there? What about the next time there's a crisis in this family? What about eternity? What about when they all die? What happens then? Now, Christ is not content just to physically heal the man's son and to leave them ignorant of who Jesus is. He's a loving Savior. And so he's issuing to the Father a challenge. He's issuing to the Father a a summons. He's calling out the Father and saying, why are you coming to me? Are you coming to me just because you heard I did miracles? Is that why you're coming to me, because I'm a miracle worker? Or do you see more deeply who I am? The words of Christ are intended here to pierce the man for his prophet, that he might rest not in the miracles, but that the signs might draw the man to the person, to Jesus. And so he's not going to leave this man stuck halfway along the route to true faith, but he's going to draw the man to himself. You have to love, don't you, the wisdom of our Savior here, who, who... In all of his love, he knows that our list and his list are not always wholly compatible, are they? The father comes with his list. My son is dying. Heal him. And Jesus has his list, the salvation of this man and his family. Today, many people still look upon Jesus as a mere curiosity, right? You have... Seminaries where many unbelievers are studying the very gospel reading this morning. And they're dissecting the Greek language here and studying all kinds of things about the culture. But for many of them, Christ is just interesting. It's just a a curiosity. They have just an academic interest. And for us, too. Sometimes Christ is not known as the Christ, but as our miracle worker, as our genie in the bottle, as our Amazon Prime account. We can just order something up. What do you need from him? And he'll deliver it to your doorstep. But to know Christ, the Son of God, fellowship with him, 
is something different. The Lord continues to work upon us today, and it's encouraging to remember that Christ always labors to give us more than we can imagine. We who are far too easily pleased, happy with a good job, with a healthy family, with a safe country. And Christ says, oh no, I got something far, far better, far greater for you. Maybe we're longing to be married, praying and pleading for a spouse. And why doesn't the Lord answer? Why doesn't the Lord deliver? I remember those days. But what if the Lord's intention is to give you not just a Christian spouse, but to give you a marriage filled with deep fellowship with Jesus? Or maybe you're going through marriage difficulties, marriage misunderstandings or strife, and you're praying, Lord, why don't you remove these things? Why don't you, why don't you take these things away? But, but what if Christ's list, in distinction from your list, is to give you back, not just to each other, but to give you back with a deeper love for your Savior? So often we want the blessing, we want the relief, we want the miracle, and Jesus steps in the way, actually. That's what he's doing here to this father. The father comes pleading for his son, and Christ steps right between the father and his son. And says, no, you deal with me. You don't grab my power and run off. Me. Look at me. Reckon with me. Believe on me. Christ is a true surgeon. Surgeons wound, don't they? That's what a scalpel does. But they wound in order to heal. In order to heal. And this is Jesus uncovering the issue with the Father. But then notice Christ go to work to heal. Let's look, secondly, not just at the issue Christ uncovers, but the, te- the demand that, that Jesus makes here, calling for true faith. Next thing that happens in the text is the man, verse 49, says, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's filled with anguish. And it's a good thing that he doesn't run off offended at Jesus. I guess you're not going to help me. But he he presses in. In fact, even as Jesus seems to step back or rebuff him, he actually draws in closer, doesn't he? With urgency, that's good. But since he says the same thing, as he said before, we're, we're not sure if the man gets it, if he understands what Christ is saying. But in any case, Christ is going to bring him to where he needs to be. And here comes the second surprise of the text, verse 50. Then Jesus says to him, go your way, your son lives. Now think about those words. Notice three things about those words. Number one, the man gets what he wants. He wants the life of his son, he gets the life of his son. He wants healing, he's got healing, go, your son lives. In fact, he doesn't just receive a promise that I'm going to heal your son or your son's going to get better. He receives the declaration by which Christ heals the son, your son lives, I've done it. But secondly, notice he doesn't get what he asked for. He had asked that Jesus would come down to Capernaum where he lives That he would come down to his son. And Jesus isn't going to do that. All he gives the man is a word. Your son lives. And thirdly notice. Jesus is telling him that's all he needs. 
Because Jesus says, not just that your son lives, Jesus says, go your way. Go your way. The man says, come my way. Jesus says, no, go your way. That's it. I give you the life of your son. And you have to believe my word. Man can't phone up Capernaum. There's no phones. He can't have a Zoom meeting with his household and see how the sun is. There's no internet. The man's 16 miles away from home and he's got the word of Jesus, your son lives. And the word of Jesus, now go. He's being commanded to believe on the word of Jesus without seeing a miracle. Without seeing a sign or a wonder. Believe my word. What will the father do? He's demanding the father walk away with the mere word. And we read, So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. It's remarkable, isn't it? The man takes the word. Jesus is leading the man one step closer to true faith in his name. We're starting to see here the victory of the Savior who comes not just to save dying boys from a physical death, but to do something more, something greater. We're seeing here a Savior who is not a weakling who stands knocking helplessly at the door as some poor wretched soul. Please, somebody love me. Please, somebody help me. Please, somebody take me in. But a mighty Savior, a conqueror who comes to seek and to save the lost. And he will be triumphant. And so we as God's people are called to rejoice and be glad that salvation is not in our hands. And Jesus doesn't leave it up to us and our list about what we need. Jesus has come to penetrate to the deepest need and to supply that the demand he makes that we believe his word is the grace he gives that we believe his word. This is salvation. This is a savior. Man has his urgent idea about what Jesus needs to do and need to do now. And Jesus says, slow down. There's something greater that you need. And I want to give that to you too. I don't just want to give you your son. I want to give you myself. This is our Lord. Who's still at work today, isn't he? The risen Savior. He's still at work today. He who reveals himself here is risen from the dead and is the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever engaged in the same ministry today. Maybe we read our Bibles for the week and we say, I wish something more was happening. Maybe we come to worship services and say, you know what? Doesn't it seem that exciting to me? Get the same thing every week. We get another message from the Bible preached to us, ordinary preaching. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to amount to too much. Or maybe we look at our lives and say, this is who I am. This is the faith I have. It's never going to change. I'll never rise higher. And the scriptures are calling us to look at the Lord Jesus. Take a good, hard look at the Savior. 
see his power, see his love, see his persistence, see his wisdom and knowing the real goal and how to get us there, and to rejoice that he refuses to leave us in our misunderstandings and misperceptions, but in his own way, through his own means, by speaking his word, he's accomplishing something far greater than any signs and wonders. And so we see it finally that salvation comes to this household. Notice that finally here. We can gather here what has happened back in Capernaum. At the moment Jesus is speaking to the man, suddenly this child is all the better. And you can just imagine the mom and the siblings, if there are any, the servants as well, like, what's going on here? This is amazing. And they're overjoyed. He lives. I guess he's okay. Are you okay? How do you feel? I'm great. And then we got to go, we got to go tell the master, send some servants. We need to go tell him he's, he's better. Well, there's a, a gap here, 16 miles, hilly country. Take five or six or seven hours maybe to travel it. The servants don't meet up with the master till the next day. And when they see him, they burst out with essentially the same thing Jesus says. They say to the master, your son lives. And the master asks, when? When did he get better? And he discovers that he got better at the very moment Jesus said, your son lives. And so it's a glorious confirmation of this man. And there's a change now. We had read earlier, verse 50, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. He believed the word with regard to the specific issue of the life of his son. He believed the word of Jesus that his son was healed. And so that believing was somewhat limited. But now we read at verse 53, and he himself believed and his whole household. And now there's no limiting object. He doesn't just believe a word about a specific son who is sick. Now he becomes a believer, he and his household. Now they become disciples. Now they believe on the Christ of God who has come to reconcile sinners to God. Now they really believe. What a glorious event. A man comes to Jesus because he does miracles. He walks away from Jesus believing Christ has healed his son. And he returns home a believer in the Savior of the world. Reminds us of what happened in Samaria, right? A woman comes to a well. She meets a man. She believes he's a Jew. She learns he's a prophet. She leaves believing he's the Christ. And the whole town announces finally he's the Son of God. Savior who reveals himself, who brings people to faith in himself. What a glorious thing it is that this man's whole household is saved. His whole family. No doubt they hear from the father, the story. I came to him, I pleaded for you, my son. You know what he said to me? He said, unless you, be- you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And I was challenged by that. I wrestled with that. And I pleaded with him, save my son. 
And he said, go, your son lives. And I had to decide whether to take him at his word or not. And by God's grace, I believe the word. But now I've come home and I've seen. He's more than I thought he was. This is the Messiah. The whole household believes. Mother, presumably. Other siblings, if there are some, who are old enough to understand these things. Servants of the household. Isn't this the the way of the Lord, the covenant way of the Lord, that he who created the family loves to redeem the family, that he who created the family loves to work through the family? We praise God, don't we? Praise God for, for his grace, that he embraces believers and their children. And isn't it always comforting to know that God knows for our children better what they need than we do? It's a lesson every parent should take to heart, right? A man comes to Jesus to get his son healed of a physical ailment, but to leave his son in bondage to Satan. And Jesus comes to rescue his son from eternal death. How does your list for your children compare to Christ's list? How does your list for your grandchildren compare to Christ's list? And whose list will you trust? Sometimes what we regard as the worst thing that could happen to them is not the worst thing that could happen to them. What we regard as the best thing that could happen to them is not the best thing that could happen to them. We have a Savior who does for us beyond all we could ask or even imagine. Here's a father who must have learned never to trust himself again. What I thought my son needed more than anything else, had I had my request, would have meant I would be eternally separated from my son in hell. I'm so thankful for a Savior that knew better than I did. You see, brothers and sisters, it's not that miracles are bad. I mean, Christ came to do them, didn't he? He he came to reveal himself through signs. But Christ is always more than the signs. He's more than the miracles. He's not just the bread he distributes. He himself is the bread of life. He's not just the saving of a son. He is the salvation of the son. And so Christ has come to be known Not as the giver of gifts, but as he himself, who is the gift of God, who's come to bring us into the Father's presence, to restore us with God, to take away his wrath, to make us the Lord's forever, that we might reign eternally. To all these people back in Galilee, can you just imagine the scene? They they are salivating for, for signs and wonders. A father shows up and he wants a miracle. They're they're drooling here. Are we going to see a miracle? All they get is a word. Your son lives. They see a a man go away. They're perhaps incredibly disappointed. And little do they know, Christ has just saved the boy physically and in a moment eternally. What a Savior. 
And so the Lord through this is revealing himself to us as a greater Savior than we can imagine. But I think he also is summoning us to himself. For any who've been looking upon Jesus as only a curiosity, an interesting fellow, for any who've been using religion as a kind of help in their life, for any who've been treating Christ as a vending machine, punching in what you want to come dropping down into your life, Christ this morning is calling you to himself. Not to a miracle, not to some help, but to himself. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me. And for all of us in all the trials of this life, Christ is seeking to draw us closer, and he's, he's teaching us to learn to say more and more with the Apostle Paul. But the things, what things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Savior, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And Christ wants to make us say this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Is that the theme of your life? Is that what your list reads at the top, that I may know Christ, that I may know his righteousness freely credited to my account. He's kept all the law of God for me. He's died and suffered all the curse in my place. He makes me accepted in God. I want to know Christ's righteousness. And I want to know Christ personally in the fellowship of his sufferings, in the glories of his resurrection. I want to know him on that last day being raised from the dead to reign with him forever, to delight and enjoy God eternally. That's my list. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, that's the top of my list. Jesus Christ is drawing us to himself. As you go through this week and run into your first disappointment, where the thing on your list was frustrated and did not materialize, fell apart, stop, lift up your eyes to heaven and say, Lord, whatever you're doing about the thing, I want to know you. I want to know your righteousness. I want to know you and the power of your resurrection. Let's pray for that. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for such a perfect Savior. How we rejoice that he does not take orders from us, but that he who comes from heaven knows the Father, and he knows us thoroughly. He knows that we are short-sighted. He knows that we are too easily satisfied. He knows that his Father has greater things in store for his elect children. We thank you for a Savior who presses us on, who demands of us faith, 
who steps in the way of the urgency of our list to impose himself and to call us to come to him, to trust in him, to love him more deeply, to look forward more eagerly to the things you have in store for us. Oh God, how we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.